Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The popularly acclaimed two segments today, we'll hear from Christopher Ketchum, author of a profile of an eco-terrorist in Harper's Magazine, and Neve Gordon, law professor and human rights activist, about what it is in Israeli society that produces monstrosities like the war in Gaza. As we stare down climate disaster and see a political and business class with little interest in doing much serious about it, it's tempting to give in to the impulse to do something, anything, to avert catastrophe. For some people, like those in Extinction Rebellion, it means gluing yourself to a Picasso. For others, it means blowing things up. That was the approach taken by the subject of a profile by my first guest, Christopher Ketchum, published in the November issue of Harper's Magazine. His subject, Stephen McRae, was a high-end carpenter in Texas whose business was destroyed in the 2008 financial crisis. McRae ended up living in this truck in the wilderness of the American West. He grew more and more concerned about ecological devastation and in 2016 decided to do something about it, fire a single rifle shot into an electrical transformer. He got caught and spent six years in federal prison. Were it not for a plea deal, he could have done a lot more. What leads someone to a deed like that? Here with some answers is the author of that profile, Christopher Ketchum. Ketchum is a freelance magazine writer who's had over a dozen pieces in Harper's and others in The New Republic, Rolling Stone, Mother Jones, and Hustler. Christopher Ketchum. Well, the main character of your story, uh, Steve McRae, uh, he's quite the character. Tell us some about his background. Stephen Plato McRae was a carpenter for a long time in uh, Dallas, the Dallas, Texas area, where he ran a business catering to high-end architects and homeowners who sought beautiful cabinetry, and he built all sorts of beautiful spiral staircases and the like. And he was, you know, he was an entrepreneur and small businessman who was doing very well. His business collapsed in 2008 with the global financial crisis. And um, thereafter, he ended up spending a lot of time on the road. He had no children. He and his wife got divorced. And um, he ended up in the wild a lot, backpacking and camping there was a period there, about oh, eight-year period, where he was beginning to see a lot of changes on the landscape that horrified him. And he was also an amateur naturalist, an amateur ecologist, very widely read in the literature of uh, especially Western, uh, American Western landscape ecology. And so what he was seeing on the land troubled him greatly and sent him spiraling into a kind of despair. And then at the same time, he began reading climate literature. And again, this is the period, so the global financial crisis, he loses his business, his marriage collapses, he heads out on the road, primarily in the American West, no longer has a house, so he's living out of his truck, camping a lot, and he starts to school himself in the literature of climate change. And so by around the year 2013-14, he is... um, beginning to see before him a a vision of the future that is brutal and violent and ecologically depauperate and brutal not only to his fellow human beings in terms of the kind of crises that we will face as a civilization due to the collapse of biophysical systems that undergird our civilization, but also violence and brutality towards um, our wild brethren the flora and fauna, the last of the flora and fauna that remain on planet Earth that are um, embattled and beleaguered. You know, for example, here's a guy who reads a statistic that states that, you know, between 1970 and present, we've lost something like 70% of all the wildlife on planet Earth, the actual biomass of wildlife, whether it be elephants in Africa or fish in the, in the Atlantic or wolves in North America, what have you. The destruction of the wild things on Earth to make way for the mad march of industrial civilization was just one of the the facts, right? The elementary facts of, of our dysfunctional and predatory relationship with the natural world that set this guy off. 
did he have any of these uh, feelings before uh, his business fell apart? Yeah, he did not. I think he did. I think he did. But he he still believed in the system. He couldn't vote because early in his life, he had been uh, incarcerated on felony charges due to a methamphetamine addiction. So there's auto theft and burglary and a couple other charges that he did time for in the Texas penitentiary system. So he couldn't vote. But what he did was he was a, a staunch contributor to the Nature Conservancy and the Wilderness Society and the Sierra Club and... He supported Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2008. He, <laughs> I thought that was a bizarre detail, yes. He called himself a, a feminist anarchist, and he really believed that a woman should be running this country, and so he opposed Barack Obama for that reason. He was he was a, an avowed Democrat, sort of in the vein of his father, a, a Texan and a, and a longtime LBJ Democrat. So for a long time, yeah, he was a lover of wilderness, but also a believer in political solutions to our ecological and environmental crises. And then he took a shot to change his life. Well, he did. I mean, so in 2000, well, the first of his, the first of the attacks that we know of, and I suspect that he actually committed a bunch of other attacks that we will never discover and he will never be prosecuted for. But the first of his attacks was in uh, 2015. It was uh, in San Juan County, Utah, where he shot out a electrical substation that supplied power to a mine, the Lisbon Valley mine, which I believe is a copper mine. That was the beginning of a series of attacks on industrial infrastructure that he believed would, yeah, in the end changed his life in terms of him ending up caught and incarcerated and sent to federal prison. But he thought it would change the the course of civilization or something. He, He began to espouse the idea that our civilization would never be reformed Ergo, it had to be destroyed. And the way to start destroying it was to attack the electrical infrastructure. When you first met him, you thought uh, he was a blowhard who read too much Edward Abbey. What about Abbey? What is his influence? What was his uh, worldview that uh, had this effect on so many people? Ed Abbey, you know, was um, one of the great writers of the American West. His most famous book is Desert Solitaire, which was a series of essays about living in the backcountry of Arches National Park and exploring the, the desert wildernesses there. After Desert Solitaire, his next really big book that really garnered fame was a book called The Monkey Wrench Gang. And The Monkey Wrench Gang is a sort of, it's a kind of satirical comedy about four wilderness explorers who um, get together on the Colorado River while, while floating the Colorado River and running the rapids to hatch a plan to start attacking industrial infrastructure all across southern Utah. For example, they attack a coal train and they destroy road building equipment, they blow up bridges, just spreading havoc wherever industrial civilization is trying to um, pierce what was then, you know, in 1975, still sizable parcels of wilderness. So Abby, because he was so funny and irreverent and, and his, his vision of this revolt was so raw and and free in spirit that uh, he he got a following. That following actually transformed a fair number of Americans to become themselves eco-saboteurs. So you first had uh, the Earth First movement, which was really spawned directly from widespread reading of the Monkey Wrench Gang. And thereafter, you had similar groups like the Animal Liberation Front, the Earth Liberation Front. So for McCray, reading Abbey was... Is a spirit calling because he himself, McCray, had spent a lot of time in those same desert landscapes that Abbey defended and gloried in. You know, the, the, the canyons and the mesas and the, the uh, Sky Island Mountains of southern Utah and the, and the deep riparian corridors, their waterfalls and their rare riparian vegetation and, and all of the wonderful little miracles that you can find traveling across the desert in terms of hidden springs and oases and that kind of thing. So how did he get busted? He ended up befriending a contractor in um, in the town of Escalante, Utah, where I was living in 2015 and 16. And uh, in September of 2016, he rolls into Escalante to seek work with this contractor, a guy named Mark Austin, who he had met the year previous. 
And I think McCray really wanted someone to know about what he was doing. He, he was proud of his various acts of sabotage. And so he just started babbling about it, hinting first at illegal activities, and then over time, revealing way too much about these felony crimes he had been committing. And uh, so Austin, hearing this and hearing some of McCray's plans, one of which was to, to basically put Las Vegas into darkness, which was McCray's words, because McCray hated Las Vegas. Las Vegas represented everything as loathsome and hideous in our culture. He's got a point. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, Las Vegas should be destroyed. We all know that. But you know, it would hurt a lot of people, and you can't hurt people, right? And so that's that was Austin's response to that. He's like, well, yeah, Las Vegas is horrific, but if you shut down all the electricity, you'll kill a lot of innocent people. And so that was at least Austin's proclaimed reason for why he approached the FBI after hearing McCray's talk and then outfitted himself with a wire and started recording secretly the conversations he was having with McCray on various work sites and on various uh, trips that they did together across southern Utah while McCray was working for Austin. And so what I did is I got a hold of the the transcripts, thousands of pages of transcripts, and um, what they reveal is a guy, McCray, seeking desperately to be heard and recognized for these criminal acts. And the other guy, Austin, listening with seeming sympathy, but at the same time leading him on and understanding clearly that this was a guy who maybe should be in jail. That was Austin's view. McCray always protested that he had no, no intention of ever hurting anybody and so I'll leave it at that. I don't know if indeed McCray wanted to take out the electricity supply to Las Vegas, he probably would have ended up hurting some innocent people. And so what happens is Austin takes these tapes to the FBI. The FBI feels there's enough evidence to arrest him. And this is so the, this is the, the period of these conversations is roughly September 2016 to November 2nd, 2016, when McCray was finally arrested. About 40 FBI agents descended on Escalante, which is a tiny little village lost in the desert, a village of 800 people. So they got 40 FBI agents show up for this one guy and he gets arrested. And that was the end of McCray's adventures. I'm speaking with Christopher Ketchum, author of The Machine Breaker in the November issue of Harper's Magazine. The 40 FBI agents remind me that the state really takes this stuff very seriously. They punish it very harshly. I once met a guy who uh, served a few years in solitary merely for spreading damaging financial information about drug companies that did animal testing, which is the sort of thing yes. that stock operators do all the time. How do they treat McRae? Well, first, the state seeks to charge him with, uh, and these are federal prosecutors, with in, under enhanced terrorism statutes, which basically take any act of sabotage and then make it a terrorist act with the consequence that if convicted, he would serve an immensely greater term in prison than if he was simply charged with industrial sabotage. And so you're absolutely correct. The state takes very seriously any threats to the industrial system, any threats to or any threats by militant radicals, eco-saboteurs to corporate system, to any animal enterprise, to um, a livestock growing operations, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the, the, the state wanted to destroy this guy. He initially sought to fight, uh, sought to go to trial, and then finally broke under, under the immense pressure leveled against him and um, took a plea deal and was sentenced to about six years in federal prison and a hard time, you know, in, a, in a, the Florence medium security prison, which is right across from the supermax, the Florence supermax where Ted Kaczynski was housed and other psychopaths are housed. So yeah, it's these things go. He got off kind of light six years. Uh, you know, maybe so. I, I actually don't know what the standard sentencing for those acts would be. But yeah, he was he was spared the enhanced terrorism or spared the subjugation to the enhanced terrorism statutes um, through this plea deal. Because I think if he if he had forced the case to go to trial, they were looking to give him like twenty five years. Okay, so um, let's uh, you know, do the balancing act here. On one hand, McRae comes off as violently insane, sociopathic. As you say, you know, he would have hurt, maybe killed 
a great number of people by some of his actions. The person shrinks probably had a point in their diagnosis of mental problems, thought disorder, paranoia, bipolar disorder, narcissistic grandiosity. Dave Foreman, one of his intellectual ancestors, was deeply misanthropic, welcomed AIDS, talked openly about reducing the population radically. I mean, their vision would require a great uh, reduction of the human population, like 90% or so. But in some sense, he has a point. We are socialized or compelled to serve as destructive machine, and it feels like there's no way out. So how do you balance these things? First of all, I would not characterize McCray as violently insane or sociopathic at all. I don't think that there's any evidence of that. I think he's a deeply troubled human being, but as I see it, he's deeply troubled for some very valid reasons. And those valid reasons are that, that he's seeing um, the spoliation of the planet that he loves under the subjugation of the industrial system. And so he's reacting in an extreme way, perhaps. But I would suggest that the psychopaths are the ones running our corporations and our governments that collude with corporations. And I would suggest that the violently insane are those people who, uh, who uh, oversee our military and oversee um, uh, companies that seek predatory profits by exploiting Mother Nature and exploiting other human beings. So, yeah, I don't think that characterization should stand at all regarding Mr. McRae. But yes, there, there. You know, when you look at this whole field of thought, right? You can characterize it as misanthropic under the Dave Foreman school, or or uh, or a neo Malthusian. But there is, though, the basic fact that we have to recognize that the industrial system coupled with massive overpopulation is causing widespread destruction to the biophysical order, to the stable biophysical order of the Holocene. And now as we enter into the Anthropocene, we're in, we're in a state of biodiversity collapse, climate chaos, and the disordering of that stable system that has allowed for for some measure of human flourishing. So the question really is how do you how do you maintain a earth friendly, environmentally sane, ecologically sound industrial civilization? I would suggest that you can't. I don't think you can green industrial civilization. I think it is inherently destructive. And the only solution to the industrial civilization ultimately will be its own destruction and the massive reduction of human populations on Earth to something that's uh, that's sustainable, truly sustainable. Now, do we want that to happen? Of course not, because of the immense suffering that would be involved, the immense suffering of innocence, of children brought into a system over which they have no control, right? They've made no choice to be embedded in a system that's predatory and violent and totally unsustainable and based on plunder and pillage of natural resources. It's a real bind we're in. We don't want to cause any harm, but we realize, I think, if you really think deeply about these things, that we're trapped in a monstrous system that ultimately cannot go on forever. Yeah, the problem is that this is a political dead end. One guy, 10 guys with a rifle, uh, rifles, uh, that's not going to change anything. No. no. And I can understand the desperate frustration of somebody who sees this and feels this, but I don't know, what do you do with that energy? It's not, not very productive. When I went to visit him after two months after he got out of prison, we were staying in a little cabin in uh, the Gila Wilderness National Forest, which is part of the Gila Wilderness in south uh, southwestern New Mexico. I went there with my girlfriend and we were sitting talking with him, and I confronted him about the fact that his actions had absolutely zero positive consequences for achieving what he wanted to achieve. He achieved nothing, right? And he got enraged, and he smashed a glass across the table and scared the shit out of myself and my girlfriend. I thought he was about to blow. So uh, the question is effectiveness, right? Is this effective? Is it effective for even... A, I don't know, a thousand guys with rifles to go out and hit the industrial, hit the infrastructure of the industrial system. Yeah, it would be effective actually to have a thousand people do that altogether. It'd be very destructive. What would happen? There would be violent response by the state and corporate apparatus, massive increase of state surveillance and a widespread repression by the police and federal authorities. What the net effect would be would be a, 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 an authoritarian crackdown and a, uh, an empowerment of the repressive state. So again, it's like, these are really complex issues. I don't see any way out of these problems that we face. 
for those out there like Enviro's, you know, bright green Enviro's who say, well, we're all going to drive Priuses and that everything's going to be powered by solar panels and wind turbines. That's only one part of the problem, right? Carbon emissions are only one facet of ecological overshoot. Even if we solve climate emissions with a whole bunch of solar panels and wind turbines and beautiful Priuses, we'd still be faced with biodiversity crash. We'd still be faced with, with loss of arable soil, with uh, shortages of fresh water, with a climate system that remains out of control because we've already set into motion a decades-long destabilization of the climate system that will play out as it will play out. We're locked into a 2C warm, 2 centigrade warming by 2100, if not way earlier than that, which is going to produce havoc. So the question is, for me, the interest in McRae was, well, okay, he sees all the same facts and problems, the insurmountable issues of um, industrial civilization being totally unsustainable. And he went out and he committed these desperate acts, knowing full well that if caught, he would serve time in horrible conditions in federal prison. Now, I've, I'm, as I said, familiar with all these same facts. I do nothing. Why don't I pick up a rifle and go out and start shooting things up and destroying industrial infrastructure and acting in, in ways that might satisfy some sort of need to some sort of might satisfy some sort of delusion that I have agency in a world gone mad. So that to me is really interesting. Why do some people make those decisions and then, and then go out and, and act and take those extreme risks? That was Christopher Ketchum, author of The Machine Breaker in the November issue of Harper's. His website is Christopher Ketchum, K-E-T-C-H-A-M dot com, Christopher dot com. I don't want to give up in the argument that there's something sociopathic about an environmental politics organized around risky attacks in the industrial infrastructure that aim to bring about some sort of radical change with neither long-term strategy nor support among the broad population, a population that could suffer harm from such gestures. In political terms, it's a classic adventurism that appeals to lonely guys with guns. You can understand the desperation that produces these feelings and actions. You see a society that is hurling towards destruction with little intention of doing anything about it, and you feel compelled to intervene. But your intervention will inevitably ineffectual and will only produce crackdown and reaction. It's an individualist substitute for politics. Having said that, I will admit I don't know what the answer is. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Brian Eno's Emerald and Stone played in a piano transcription by Bruce Brubaker from a newly released album, Eno Piano, which you can find on Bandcamp. The original Eno version was on Small Craft on a Milk Sea. Next, to look at what in Israel produces monstrosities like the war on Gaza. I've been focusing a lot lately on analyses from Israeli leftists. There aren't many of them, but I feel it's important not only to amplify their voices outside Israel, but to hear their views on what causes a country to bomb hospitals. For that, we're joined by Neve Gordon, a professor of international law and human rights at Queen Mary University of London. Gordon is a third-generation Israeli who began his academic career there, but was driven out of the country after he and his family suffered death threats over his calling Israel an apartheid state and endorsing the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. He writes frequently for Al Jazeera and Haaretz. Gordon is also the author of several books, including Human Shields, A History of People in the Line of Fire, published by the University of California Press in 2020. On that topic, Gordon wrote in Al Jazeera in 2018 that the seemingly endless accusation that Palestinians use human shields to protect demonstrators reveals that for Israel, all Palestinian protesters are fair game. 
Here's Neve Gordon. I was just looking at a, a piece you did some years ago uh, for The Nation, 2015, uh, about orgies of feeling and uh, their role in Israeli politics. Uh, how, how does that apply to the present? Are we in the midst of a really extraordinary orgy of feeling? Orgies of feeling is not my term. It's a term developed by Elizabeth Anker from uh, George Washington University, who actually studied at Berkeley. Is clear is that in Israel today, among large segments of society, there is immense pain and immense fear. Pain from the massacre carried out by Hamas on October 7th, because many people in Israel either know someone that was killed or kidnapped, or are one degree of separation from someone that was killed or kidnapped. And immense fear because what they experience on October 7th and later is this colossal failure, both of the military to stop the attacks and later of the government to kind of organize a response to help the civilians and so forth. So many Israelis are now looking inwards at what is going on to them, or have been at least in the past few weeks, not really seeing what is happening in the Gaza Strip or around them in the world. Yes. Not really seeing what's going on in Gaza, not really seeing what their country is doing to um, a population that's been oppressing for over seven decades. Um, How is that blindness sustained? If you look at Israeli media, if you look at the television, which is probably still the major source of media for large proportions of the population, images of Gaza are not shown or hardly shown. The voices from Gaza are not spoken. They are silence. What the Israeli public that consumes Hebrew media is really not getting access to what is going on in Gaza, and they would have to access foreign media, they would have to access social media abroad in order to see it. I mean, many people probably do, but others don't. So there is this propaganda machine that is operating much more intensely inside Israel than it is operating outside. So what we're seeing today, for example, is Palestinian citizens of Israel that are posting in Facebook or on Twitter some kind of recognition of the suffering that the Palestinian civilian in Gaza are undergoing that were posting about the death of almost 5,000 children, about babies in incubators that are dying. These Palestinians, or many of them have been arrested. If they're students, they're suspended from their universities. So what we have is a clampdown on freedom of speech that is unprecedented in Israel, and voices that have some kind of empathy and compassion towards the Palestinians are considered illegitimate at this point in Israel. What you describe, um, there's certainly a milder version of that going on in Western countries. The atmosphere in Britain is the the slightest uh, expression of sympathy for Palestinians is treated as just virulent anti-Semitism. We're seeing people losing their jobs, reputations destroyed. An art exhibit by Ai Weiwei was just canceled because he sent, said something mildly sympathetic to Palestine. What is driving that? What is this Western policing of discourse and the unquestioned sympathy for what Israel is doing? Where does that come from? How do you explain that? So first... I should mention that in the United States, it's probably even worse than in the UK. You have two student societies, for example, at Columbia University, the Palestinian Student Society and Jewish Voices for Peace have been suspended because they they protested demanding a ceasefire. Demanding a ceasefire led to the suspension of two student organizations at one of the major institutions in the United States. And we see that in numerous institutions across the country. Now, what 
we are also seeing is indeed the rise of uh, Islamophobia and anti-Semitism at the same time, but what the powers that be, whether it's university administrators and university leaders or politicians in D.C. or in Downing Street here in London, all they recognize is the the rise of anti-Semitism, but also how they understand anti-Semitism and how I understand anti-Semitism is very different. So while anti-Semitism is alive and well in the UK, and my children who go here to a public school have experienced it, the anti-Semitism they are referring to when they when they clamp down on freedom of speech and academic freedom is basically the conflation of anti-Semitism with harsh criticism of Israel or with forms of anti-Zionism. Namely, for them, anti-Semitism is not necessarily hate speech towards Jews, but a certain political ideology. And so they're using that to uh, uh, clamp down on freedom of speech. I'm One of my positions now is that I'm the chair of the Committee on Academic Freedom in the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies. And we've written many letters, both to university leaders, but also to the Secretary of State for Education here in the United Kingdom. And yesterday I received a response for one of the letters I wrote her as the chair of this committee, And what she says is, uh, hey, listen, the Palestinian flag in certain contexts is not anti-Semitic, but in other contexts, if you wave a Palestinian flag, it is anti-Semitic. So the Palestinians can no longer freely wave their flag without fearing that they will be branded as anti-Semitic. And that is a very strong chilling effect and clamp down at the at the very basic idea of freedom of expression. Well, the people who make criticisms like that seem incapable of distinguishing between criticisms of Israeli state policy and Jews as Jews. They're just totally conflated. Yes, but what we see, and but that has been going around now for several years. Is this conflation of criticism of Jews or hate speech towards Jews, and criticism of the Israeli policies? What is new since October seventh, in my opinion, is that it's no longer only an anti-Zionist stance or a, a harsh criticism of Israeli policy, like accepting the claim that Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International has said that Israel is committing the crime of apartheid. If I say that, I can be branded as an anti-Semite. That already existed before October 7th. What is new, I think, since October 7th is the fact that what they're trying to do now is conflate people that adopt the settler colonial paradigm and claim that Israel is a settler colonial state with anti-Semitism. So a whole field of academic research and academic work that is being carried out in countries all over the world is now being branded as anti-Semitic. This is a new move and also a very dangerous move that we have to push back against. What is the source of this deep Western investment in Israel? Why are they just you know, so fervently in support uh, of uh, Israeli policy and so um, harshly critical of any skepticism towards it? First, I'd, li- I'd like to kind of complicate your question because we need to distinguish, when you say Western, we need to distinguish between Western civil society and Western leaders. Western civil society at, here in England for sure, but also from what I'm seeing in the United States, is very much in support now of the Palestinian rights and very much uh, critical of the kind of violence Israel has unleashed in the Gaza Strip since the October 7th massacre. And so we see support 
of Palestinian self-determination in the West on the level of liberal society. But there is a gap, there is a major gap, and I think that's what you were referring to, between civil society and the leaders. The leaders are supporting Israel, and the support has many roots. I don't think we can get into all these roots right now, but there's economic reasons, there's geopolitical reasons of control of the Middle East and resources that belong to the Middle East. There is this Judo-Christian Zionist alliance that is going on. There's a lot of ideological realpolitik interest that leaders seem to think go hand in hand between the interests of their government and the interests of the Israeli government. And we can discuss that further, but basically what we see here now, which is something we haven't seen before, is this major disconnect between the leaders and civil society. There does seem to be a loss uh, of uh, support for Israel, universal support for Israel. I can see that in the U.S., uh, especially among younger people. Um, It's a real departure from what we've seen in previous uh, episodes of Israeli violence. It does seem that that uh, is provoking fear and anxiety among elites, that they're reacting with such uh, severity to any kind of uh, dissent. Absolutely. So what we see, so this relates to your initial questions, what we see now is this clampdown, which is unprecedented, I think, probably since McCarthy. What We had a, a, a webinar yesterday with the Middle East Studies Association, which is the biggest association of Middle East scholars in the world. And the head of their Committee on Academic Freedom, who's been in this role for many years now, said that the clampdown uh, after October 7th is worse than the clampdown after 9-11. And any attempt to be vocal, not even critical of Israel, just calling for a ceasefire, calling for an end of to the violence, for a stop to violence, is considered hate speech in a sense that should be clamped down on. And and that is something uh, we really need to push back against. We cannot bow down. And yet what we're seeing in in the UK and in Israel, that often they target people that are precarious, whether it's students or staff members in universities that are on fixed-term contracts, that don't have tenure, and that can lose their jobs. And that creates this whole kind of broad chilling effect among the population. And people are fearful of posting things. I've talked to several friends in Israel that tell me we, we're not going to post anything on Facebook, Twitter, or anything because we're afraid anything will be said. We say what can be used against us. I have a friend who wrote an op-ed for Haaretz and a few days later decided he's not going to send it because of fear. Uh, I have friends that have been very active, Jewish friends, that have been very active in South Hebron against the ethnic cleansing of communities in the West Bank and have fled Israel because their pictures and addresses went on social media among the the Messianic settlers and they were afraid that there would be retribution. It's a new ballgame, something we have not seen in the past in terms of clamping down on not only on Palestinians, but people that support Palestinian rights. I'm speaking with Neve Gordon, Professor of International Law and Human Rights at Queen Mary, University of London. Bombing hospitals, people are looking at uh, this in some horror. Not, not all people, not enough people. Some people are making excuses for it. But the targeting of the hospitals in Gaza has been really shocking. Uh, you've written, uh, you wrote in Al Jazeera recently, that it's all about winning. What does winning mean? What does winning mean in this struggle of, what, 75 years? I would like to discuss the bombing of hospitals, but let me begin with winning, and then maybe we'll move to the hospital. So winning is about getting rid of Hamas for basically all Israelis except a tiny few. But what does that mean, getting rid of Hamas? Hamas 
is a political movement. It's a social movement that has a military arm that carried out the massacre on October 7th. It has thousands of followers in the in the Gaza Strip. The last polls I've seen is that 40% of the Gaza Strip supported Hamas on the eve of the October massacre. So what does getting rid of Hamas mean? For the right-wing settlers, it means basically reoccupying the Gaza Strip, killing the Hamas leaders, political leaders, killing Hamas militants, cutting the Gaza Strip to, to different fragments like Israel did in the West Bank, and resettling the Gaza Strip with Israeli settlers. It means probably controlling over most of the northern Gaza Strip, and it's about the expansion of the the settler program back into the Gaza Strip, and that would entail ethnic cleansing of Palestinians and so forth. For the center and for the non-religious right wing, it it probably means creating a much larger perimeter around the Gaza Strip, meaning taking land from this very small area, probably around a kilometer on its eastern and southern uh, border, maybe a bit less on the southern border, and then much more on the northern border, and keeping that as a no-man's land, and then continuing to occupy so as to ensure some kind of security control over the Gaza Strip. And what we will see in the future are incursions like we see periodically in Jenin, where Israeli soldiers come in, they kill uh, uh, some militants, they kill some civilians, and go out. So I think that is basically how Netanyahu imagines the future, and then we have another camp, which is the liberal Zionists, that don't have a plan, but are supporting the actions against Hamas, are supporting the, the kind of violence that has already killed at least 11,000 people, 5,000 of them are children, and the d- destruction of 50% of the hospitals in the Gaza Strip, and so forth. And then there's this tiny minority, maybe a thousand, maybe two thousand Israeli Jews that still have a dream from the river to the sea of a democracy where all people have equal rights. So that transforming the what what Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have characterized as an apartheid regime into a democracy. That's what winning for that group is, but that group, as I said, is less than a percent of the population, of the Jewish population. And then the bombing hospitals. So what we've seen in 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 the Gaza Strip is a systematic attack on hospitals. Israel's blaming uh, the Palestinians for their own misfortunes, claiming that Hamas is using the hospitals as shields, and underneath every single hospital are Hamas tunnels and Hamas headquarters and so forth. And the claim is a kind of preemptive legal justification for the attacks on hospitals because international law actually does not allow hospitals to be used as arms depot or as places where combatants can hide. So Israel is arguing or claiming there are tunnels under these hospitals and I there there might very well be tunnels in hospitals actually in 2009 Amos Harel the the major military correspondent for Haaretz exposed that Israel was the one that built a bunker under Shifa hospital that is today being evacuated What are hospitals? Hospitals are institutions responsible for sustaining and saving the lives of the populations. We have now 25,000 injured Palestinians in Gaza. We have 9,000 
cancer patients in Gaza, and the only hospital that gives oncological treatment has been shut down. We have 1,000 Palestinians that need dialysis because of kidney failure. They too do not have access. So on the one hand, we have hospitals being overwhelmed by injured people. On the other hand, we have a population that is in need of regular care, like the 50,000 pregnant women now in Gaza, 100 of 60 of which on average give birth every day, and they have no longer any access to medical care. It makes sense in a set, in a, in a way, because what is war? War is a death drive and you want to vanquish the enemy. So what is the best way to vanquish the enemy? Is to, to destroy its life saving and life sustaining institutions. We saw that in Syria, where the Syrian regime and Russia systematically bombed the hospitals throughout the civil war, even those that were built in caves later on. And now we're seeing it in the Gaza Strip, where Israel is systematically destroying the hospitals that are sustaining the lives of the Palestinians. And this is part of what some people have called an eliminationist drive, a drive where the Palestinians' lives do not really matter and we can destroy the, the institutions that sustain them. Yeah, I was thinking of that, uh, the hospitals, but also uh, just hours ago, I believe, Israel blew up what is effectively the parliament building for Gaza. It seems like the, the ultimate goal is to destroy Gaza as an effective or existing society, a functioning society. Yes, I, you know, you see the images from the air, from the drones that are circling there, and it's rubble. It's just this tragedy that anyone with eyes in their head can see, and yet the world leaders are not willing to call for a ceasefire, except for Macron. Western world leaders, except for Macron, that called for a ceasefire and then was harshly reprimanded by uh, Netanyahu, world leaders are not calling for what seems to me to be basic decency, basic morality. You do not flatten cities. You do not attack hospitals. You do not attack schools. And the world is silent. You've also written that... Um Israel wants Palestinians to remember the Nakba, but not celebrate it. Now, we're hearing some Israeli politicians talking about making this Nakba 2.0 or something like that. How are they playing with this uh, historical concept, uh, this historical memory? So for a Palestinian ear to hear the word Nakba 2, I don't want to really compare it, but it's like someone telling me as a Jew, uh, do you want a second Holocaust? And that is anti-Semitic, right? If someone were to say that to me, and that is extremely menacing and threatening. And if someone were to kind of threaten me with that in the UK, I would feel really not safe. And I think I would be justified in feeling not safe. What the Palestinian citizens of Israel and what the Palestinians in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza are hearing again and again, if you go into the right-wing WhatsApp and Telegram groups, if you go into their TikToks, if you listen to members of Knesset and even ministers in the government, they're all talking about a Nakba too. And that is like a crazy threat Two people whose grandparents experienced a life-changing situation of ethnic cleansing where they lost everything they had, their homes, their land, some of their siblings were killed, etc., etc. So the reiteration of the Nakba 2 is a threat that is, it's difficult for me to even express how harsh it is and how it it makes my Palestinian friends feel. And for me, as an Israeli Jew, it's about what this kind of colonial project has, how it has transformed the Jew, the colonizers, to think that they can speak like that and it's legitimate and it's kosher. 
It's not kosher to speak like that. If you look at what Israel is doing right now, it seems that that's the ultimate intention. Israel is not a, a monotheistic thing like the United States is not. I think within certain circles when is in Israel, it is definitely the ultimate intention. With other circles, I'm not sure. Is there any way out of this? I mean, it just seems uh, it's very hard to um, feel anything but despair watching what's going on now. Do you have any grounds for um, hope or are we just hurtling towards absolute disaster? We definitely need a paradigm shift. I think what what everyone's saying is that the whole idea of controlling another people and, so to speak, mowing the lawn, which means asserting violence from time to time against them to keep their heads bowed, has not worked. October 7th taught us that it has not worked. But what we're seeing is not an attempt to replace this paradigm and try to address the issues on the ground differently, but actually the reassertion of the paradigm with much more violence. Now, this will fail. What we need to do is we need to take a step back. We First, we need a ceasefire. But after that, we need to take a step back and saying, hey, military intervention and military violence is taking us nowhere. It's just bringing more and more violence, more and more hatred in the region. And outside of it, it's leading to more and more Islamophobia and more and more anti-Semitism, which is also violent. So we need to rethink our paradigm. Jews and Palestinians can share this land, but they can share it only as equals. We're actually interdependent, but our interdependency today is structured like a master-slave relationship. And we need to change that interdependent relationship and make it into an egalitarian one. That was Neve Gordon, a professor of international law and human rights at Queen Mary University of London. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of another track from Bruce Brubaker's album of Brian Eno covers, this by This River, which originally appeared on Before and After Science. Till next week, bye. <laughs>